Welcome to Reality Asserts Itself on The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. The man who knew too much. That's Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake was in the Air Force. He was in the NSA. And for many years, in and out of various parts of the American national security state, both in public service and in the private sector, I say the man who knew too much, but he's also the man who saw and spoke internally to begin with. He raised objections to the NSA having knowledge about 9-11 and not making, making use of that knowledge to prevent 9-11. He went public eventually, but first anonymously, on a mass surveillance program that he thought violated the Fourth Amendment. He went public eventually, but first within all due internal process on what he thought was a waste of multi-billion dollar program that had been created for mass surveillance. So not only did it violate the Fourth Amendment, it also was a big boondoggle. The man who knew, knew too much now joins us in the studio. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So just quickly, Thomas is a former senior executive of the U.S. National Security Agency. He's a decorated United States Air Force and United States Navy veteran. And as I said, he's a whistleblower. He's a whistleblower who was indicted. Didn't go to jail, but you came pretty close. Um, first of all, in reality asserts itself, as most of our viewers know, I usually start with a personal backstory. Um, we're not gonna, we're gonna get there, but we're not gonna quite start there. Um, for people who don't know your case, kind of just quickly, why did they go after you? They went after me because I knew too much about several things, and I shared it within channels and ultimately went to the press anonymously and over the course of a number of years. Um, but I was confronted by these, the dark side shortly after 9-11. So the first, the first thing was the secret surveillance programs that were put into place as a result of 9-11 and unleashed uh, on the Petri dish called the United States of America, turning the United States of America into the equivalent of a foreign nation for dragnet electronic surveillance. Um, to this day, we still don't know, know the full extent. And we're, we're going to dig into all yeah. this. And then there was also the 9-11 knowledge, what NSA actually knew what they should have known, what they didn't share, what they kept hidden, and information that they never even discovered until later. But, but you said that if it had been acted on, it might have been able, the, that information might have led to preventing the 9-11 events. Well, I consider NSA quite culpable. In fact, I, well, well, we'll get into the details as to why, but extraordinarily culpable, and they've been covering up their culpability ever since. What happened is I ended up speaking truth to power, uh, starting with NSA, and they didn't like that. And I ultimately became a material witness in several government investigations, including two 9-11 congressional investigations, a Department of Defense Office of Inspector General audit and investigation. And the long story short, after significant reprisal and retaliation, um, the New York Times article comes out in December 2005, revealing for the first time publicly the existence of the so-called terror surveillance program. It was not known as that. It was a convenient cover. That caused a huge stir at NSA and then within the Department of Justice. They referred it to the Department of Justice for criminal um, uh, investigation, and I was put on a target list shortly thereafter. And, and I, ended up, I ended up being uh, summarily visited by the FBI in November 2007 when they raided me, raided my house and raided my office down at the National Defense University. And then long story short, um, in April of 2010, I was very publicly indicted on a 10 felony count indictment, five under the Espionage Act, facing 35 years in prison. 
fortunately, I'm sitting in front of you as a free human being. I never did end up in prison, never did end up paying a fine. Okay, and we're going to get to that sure. story. We were chatting quite a bit off camera before we started the interview, and you repeated several times the phrase that you feel burdened by history. What do you mean? I'm extraordinarily burdened by history. It's the what ifs. It's the dirty knowledge that I had about secret surveillance. It's the dirty knowledge about critical intelligence the NSA actually had prior to 9-11 that was not shared properly with national command authorities, as we call them. They could have stopped 9-11 all by itself, just from, the, uh, from, just from the NSA intelligence, never mind CIA or FBI. It was a systemic failure. I'm burdened by the massive multi-billion dollar fraud on an extraordinary scale. The, the response to the failure of the, of the government to provide for the common defense was, let's just spend a lot more money because we're too big to fail. Um, I'm burdened uh, by the mass surveillance regime that was put into place in the deepest of secrecy. All of this I'm burdened by. I mean, it's, you know, it's all going on 14 years now. I looked into Pandora's box and it was very, very dark and the abyss looked back at me. And burdened because of what you had believed before you had looked into the box and what this did to your vision of what America was? Well, no, my eyes are wide open coming to NSA. Some people have this idea that somehow that I was naive coming to NSA. My, in fact, I was actually, my sanity was questioned as to whether or not I really wanted to join NSA. And your first day of the NSA is actually 9-11. First day I reported. I actually, I took the oath prior, it was all in processing, but the first day that I reported to my new job was the morning of 9-11. So if you weren't naive, why'd you join? It was, an, it was an opportunity to serve my country again at a very senior level. And I'd answer an ad in the paper in February of 2001. They were looking for outsiders. They, NSA had been placed under um, lots of attention. And they were clearly having difficulty keeping up with the digital age. Um, and they were severely challenged in a, in a post-Cold War environment. And here they were, you know, ten year, almost 10 years on, um, and they hired in about a dozen people. Um, their key stakeholder of Congress, particularly the Intelligence Committee, had been taking NSA to task for some years. And so they very reluctantly, it was General Michael V. Hayden, uh, brought in about a dozen of us. So again, why the word burden? I mean, if you say your eyes were wide open when you joined. It's burdened by what happened after I joined. I never, I mean, I never quite imagined that the period in which I grew up as a very young teenager in the 1970s, that I would end up not only revisiting, but I would be reliving it on a far vaster scale in terms of government criminal wrongdoing, uh, crimes, you know, high crimes, misdemeanors, as reliving defined by the Constitution. Reliving the Nixon era, reliving the Watergate and then some. It makes the Nixon era look like Piker is what happened after 9-11. In terms of government simply, simply uh, unchaining itself from the rule of law and, and operating under extraordinary emergency conditions, the equivalent of martial law in the country, but in secret. Virtual martial law is actually what was instituted in the United States of America, truth be told. Again, why do you feel personally burdened by that? Because you were Because part of I it? would not remain silent, and I spent many, many years defending the Constitution against my own government. And I came up short. I was unable, with, and with others, it wasn't just me, it was many others as well, uh, who raised serious questions about what we were doing. But I've confronted all this early, early on, within days and weeks of 9-11. I was confronted by the, pan, the specter of Pandora's box opened up. For example? Well, I found out within days that, that an oral uh, decision, I mean, an oral authority had been given by 
verbal authority, verbal authority from the White House authorizing NSA to start spying on the U.S. on an extraordinary scale, starting with phone numbers and special arrangements with certain telephone companies, starting with AT&T. And I remember, I'm, I mean, we may get into more details on this, but I confronted the lead attorney. Within days of Within days, a verbal authorization was granted. Is that NSA. possible that that decision can be made so quickly and not had been thought about before 9-11? Yes. As one of the t attorneys that I confronted told me, you don't understand, Mr. Drake. We live in exigent conditions. All means necessary apply. I said, including breaking the law and the you don't understand. Do you think there was some kind of plan in place prior to 9-11 for such a thing? I would say a plan. I think Cheney was looking for an excuse to reestablish, reassert the imperial presidency. He always thought that Nixon had gotten a raw deal in terms of history, and here was his moment. He was, he was ascendant. You know, he was a shadow president. He was been handed the national security portfolio by Bush. 9-11 was a convenient crisis in which to implement unitary executive authority. Let's just say it that way. And, and we're going to get into a whole segment about 9-11 and how this crisis comes to be. So you're staring at the Pandora's box. What do you do? I mean, I'm not the one who made decisions, but I now have the dirty knowledge. So I decided that I could not remain silent. If I remained silent, I'd be an accessory to a crime. I was eyewitness to the subversion of the Constitution. I took an oath to that Constitution, and I was going to hold true faith and allegiance to the same. I, was, I didn't take an oath to the President. I didn't take an oath to secrecy. I didn't take an oath to anything else other than defending and supporting the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, why didn't you buy the narrative that this was an extraordinary moment? America was under attack. Because we had failed the nation. Under the preamble of the Constitution, we had not provided for the common defense. But instead of actually acknowledging that failure, NSA and others took it as a huge opportunity. And as Rahm Emanuel is so famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And clearly, they were not going to let this crisis go to waste. But there's, there's, there's dark history here. None of this should have happened. And I'm, I'm eyewitness to a number of events that took place prior to 9-11 in which the alarm bells have been going off for many, many years. For example? Including my own experience as a reserve intel officer in the Navy down at the Pentagon. Start there. Well, in, I was on the terrorism desk for 18 months. I was there when what they tried to drop the... One year. That was the 93-94 time frame. Um, I was there when they tried to drop the World Trade Center towers the first time with truck bombs. And I was, we were sending out reports. And I remember the, the senior um, intelligence officer, right, the J-2, who reports to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, coming down to the Alert Center, the National Military Joint Intelligence Center, saying, yeah, I'm seeing all the reports, but who cares? Right, about some you know, raghead in the desert. Literally said that. Who cares? not understanding in 93 how serious they were about sending a message. We knew then that they wanted to demonstrate their, let's just say, their beef with the West by attacking Western landmarks. We sent out reports then that they're going to come back. And they came back, okay? This is part of the burden, this burden that we were, we just failed the nation. We not only were 3,000 people murdered, and hundreds of foreigners were murdered that day as well on 9-11. That all burdens me, okay? Because it's always, it's the what if for me. What if the critical intelligence is shared? What if? I realize 9-11 happened, 
but you know, for me, it's, it's life before 9-11, there's life after 9-11. And what I saw happen after 9-11 in the, in the deepest of, of bow, the bowels of NSA, right? It was, I shudder when I even go back to, and replay all that. You don't witness your own government subverting the Constitution right out from under you. No consent of the governed, no conversation, no discussion, no debate without knowing that it's fraught with enormous strategic peril, that it would have enormous consequences downstream. I knew all that then. I just couldn't turn aside. I had, to, I had to speak up and I had to defend the Constitution. This piece of paper that if it doesn't mean something, then, you know, then what matters in terms of our form of governance, realizing it's rather imperfect. Prior to 9-11, you said there were several moments like that. Oh, there's other moments. Remember, I was, I was at NSA as well as a contractor, but I was also in the Navy for a number of years, you know, during this whole period. Yeah. What's another example? Well, another example is, is Tenet. You know, he's, he sent out memos to the entire intelligence community. The system was blinking red, 1998. Blinking red. And we had Indeed. all the incidents leading up to 2001. All, all the evidence was there. All of it. And that doesn't even begin to address the reality uh, of what NSA already knew prior to 9-11. They had what they call cast iron coverage on the Yemeni switchboard, the safe house. They've been monitoring that safe house since at least 1996. It's an absolute lie of the U.S. government to say that we didn't know about the two hijackers in San Diego, for example. Absolute lie. Well, let's focus on that because I think that's one of the, the most revealing stories of the whole pre 9-11 intelligence gathering um, because it involves all the agencies. Um, so quickly, we have the, I, I'm not very good at remembering the names, but we have the two, uh, um, two of the guys that end up on the American Airlines plane are in San Diego. We have uh, a guy who works uh, as a, some kind of consultant with the Saudi government, and later, if I understand correctly, there's suggestion he's an FBI informant uh, or, or asset in some way as well. That's um, another dark thread that has not been fully unraveled, that we were trying to flip people or at least turn them into informants, some of them. But there's three agencies, at least, that know that these two guys are in San Diego and they're working with a guy who's connected with the Saudis. Um, the FBI knows they're there, the CIA knows they're there, and the NSA knows they're there. And we are supposed to believe that none of them ever passed on this information and never talk to each other about it, um, it seems a little bit bizarre. Bizarre, but you have to understand the culture of the intelligence. Uh, you know, they, they have their own egos, and information is power. I know something that you don't. If I share it, I give away my power. So you're very careful about who you give your information to. Well, let, let's break down the story a little bit, and let's get clear on what each agency knew. I can only speak to what I know about NSA. Well, let's start I, with I'm that. What, what did the NSA know? Others, but I, just so you're aware in terms of your interviewing me, I will only speak directly to what I'm aware of or what I discovered or what I gave to investigators and what I've written about. I'm well aware of speculation, some of it quite informed, some of it probably true in terms of CIA and and FBI. Well, let me read something sure. you're quoted in and you signed. It's called the NSA Insiders Reveal What Went Wrong, and this is a 
kind of a memorandum that was written by you and some of your other uh, intelligence colleagues that have also, some of them whistleblowers, some have become critics, uh, people like Binney and Ray McGovern. Um, and in this, you're quoted as saying, the NSA had the content of telephone calls between AA-77, American Airlines 77 hijacker, Khalid el-Mindar in San Diego, California, and the known Al-Qaeda safe house switchboard in Yemen, which you had just mentioned, well before 9-11, had not disseminated that information beyond NSA. In short, when confronted with the prospect of fessing up, NSA chose instead to obstruct the 9-11 congressional investigation and play dumb and keep the truth buried, including the fact that it knew about all inbound and outbound calls to the safe house in Yemen. NSA senior leaders took me off the task because they realized belatedly for some reason that I would not take part in covering up the truth about how much NSA knew but did not share. That's actually just for clarification. That's in, so context is critical here, not just the content, but what's critical is that I was actually selected as a senior executive to provide the draft statement for the record in which General Hayden would actually go down to, this is the Saxby Shambles subcommittee. He had a subcommittee on Homeland Security that had been recently formed. He began the first 9-11 congressional investigation. It led to the, the much, much larger joint inquiry, which was the basis for the 9-11 commission. I was tasked with putting together that statement for the record, um, and there's a whole story behind this, but ultimately I was taken off. Why? Because I found out the truth, the critical intelligence that NSA actually had and did not share, reports they had, um, all the information regarding the switchboards. So I was taken off the task. As I was told by the number three person at NSA who I reported to, um, it was uh, a data integrity problem, a euphemism for you know too much. Now, just to be for everyone to understand, when you join your first day actually showing up for work is 9-11, you're at a very senior level. What is it you've been asked, what have you been hired I was to actually do? hired, my literal title was senior change leader. And I reported to the signals intelligence director. That was Maureen Beginsky. And your job description, what was your... I was brought to in to help because this was part of the stakeholders, particularly Congress, is the NSA was having great difficulty meeting the demands of the 21st century. And that, that was both in technology, that was in terms of management and leadership practices, as well as process. So I was brought in to advise them and to help put in those practices, information sharing within um, critical enabling technologies. And how senior are you? In the peck, in the hierarchy, how where are you? I at? was at the second tier level. You don't, you know, I'm reporting to the, you know, number three, and only above that's deputy director and director. Hayden. That's right. And Bill Black was the then deputy director. So when you say there was evidence about San Diego, NSA had these phone calls back to the Al Qaeda, what was known to be an Al Qaeda switchboard in Yemen. NSA had were listening to these calls and don't share it. How do you know they don't share it? Because I know that from what I was found out during the course of my time there in the months after 9-11. There's no evidence at all that it was shared with any of the normal authorities. Well, that's There was a back channel, there was a back channel that was created with Cheney well, that's after 9-11. But we're talking about the intelligence prior to 9-11. And NSA had what they call cast iron coverage on the Yemeni safe house, which means 
essentially it's 24-7, 365. No matter what call is made into that switchboard, it is, it is not only is it recorded, uh, it's, it's the content is also kept as well. And any number coming in, even if it's the United States, you're gonna know about it. And under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, if you believe that it rises to the level of some of the United States, even, even if they're a resident alien, or legal or not, but resident alien, defined as US part of the US person, you then can get the warrant from the secret court and listen in. So if you're saying it wasn't shared, Richard Clark, who was the ter chief terrorism czar, um, who at, at, under Clinton at cabinet level, and I always have said this many times in interviews on The Real News, I, it's rather interesting that one of the first early things that happens is after uh, George Tenet, head of the CIA, tells George Bush in the first security briefing the number one threat to the United States is Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, you then demote your national security uh, guy. It, it wasn't a priority, I have to say that. It was not considered a strategic priority. The fact that NSA itself didn't consider counterterrorism a strategic priority, it wasn't a focus of their attention. It really wasn't. That, that's part of the bubble I keep trying to pop, this idea that somehow the United States, in spite of the tenant memos, the system as a whole simply was not paying much attention to it. Well, let me, let me see, tell you what Richard Clark says. Uh, Richard Clark, in a, in a documentary, was asked specifically about why he didn't know about the intelligence about San Diego, and here's what he said. You have to intentionally stop it. You have to intervene and say, no, I don't want that report to go. And I never got a report to that effect. If there was a decision made to stop normal distribution with regard to this, this case, then people like Tom Wilshire would have known that. Richard Clark is saying it's not just a question of prioritization. He's saying a deliberate decision that it had to be made in the normal flow of information. Now let's remember, this is during a time when he's already saying our hair's on fire. He testifies that they talk about blinking red. It was past blinking red. The NSA has to be aware that Clark and others think something's coming. We know from the interview we did with John Kiriakou that the CIA tells, uh, he couldn't name the country, he says an Arab country's ambassador. But the uh, a senior CIA official tells uh, a senior Arab ambassador that we know something's coming, it's going to be horrific, and if you have any information on it, you have to tell us because we know something terrible's coming. So how in a context of, of that do you not pass on that information and not prioritize unless there's, and as I say, we, we, we've talked to Bob Graham, the, who was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Intelligence Committee, uh, about the, all, there's so many examples of pieces of intelligence. Um, yeah, but they're all buried. It didn't, the critical pieces didn't rise to a level sufficient to actually reveal the plot in a way that you could take direct action. Although the intelligence was there, just wasn't being analyzed properly. That's a fact. Well, the intelligence was there. Was it a was fact. there. It wasn't being analyzed in a way that would reveal the fuller plot, let alone actually take out the perpetrators. Well, we know that the FBI knows about these guys in San Diego. They're trying to flip them. Well, I, I, 
Is it because I also heard the CIA knows about that them and they're trying too. to flip them? That's true too. The CIA is trying to, and the CIA apparently all doesn't want to tell games. the FBI, That's and correct. the FBI doesn't want to tell the CIA. That's all the institutional prerogatives. Okay, but they all have a burden to report to Clark. And Clark says... Clark's an outsider. Well, Clark says they deliberately don't tell me. So if they're not telling they Clark, they how can they... don't trust Clark. Well, how can they not be telling Cheney? I don't have evidence that they told Cheney. It's very possible because Cheney had quickly created his own intelligence network from those he trusted. Clark was not part of that network. Fact. So, so he was cut out. The back channel to Cheney is created pre-9-11, then? There is a back channel to Cheney. Pre-9-11. Pre-9-11. So if, if Clark I remember, said, even as late as August, it is true, the president of the, the PDB, which I used to be a part when I was down at the Pentagon uh, doing imagery analysis, um, the PDP actually did, in fact, there was the President's Daily Brief that first week, that first week in August, talking about they're going to use... Yeah, man, okay? I, yeah, how do you not prioritize right. what you know about these guys, the Yemen connection, and there's, a, and there's a presidential a memo briefing from the CIA saying Bin Laden plans to attack America. That's correct. And you know two guys are in Seattle. Yep, they let it happen. That isn't... Yeah, this isn't just about prioritization. Yeah, there's... Let me, let me, I asked the question. It was convenient. I, I asked it Bob Graham. Okay. Here's what I asked Bob Graham. We'll, we'll play a clip. I interviewed Bob Graham and asked him exactly this question. So I'm, I'm, I'm up going to say something which I think all you can do is say I can't comment on, but I'm going to say it. Um, if, if you're right, and I'm going to take what you said even a little further, which if, if you are right that, that Bandar knew this was going on, then he's sitting meeting with his friend, President Bush, regularly in the days leading up to 9-11 and, and either not saying anything or, or somehow does. Uh, I mean, I know you know there's, there's a lot of theory and, and, and I think a lot of evidence that would at least require an inquiry that there's a deliberate intent not to know. It's not just lack of, it's not just incompetency. And, and, and I mean, it, to believe that it's just incompetency, then you have to think it, it's, it's like the uh, keystone cops of intelligence agencies. They're just tripping all over each other. Yeah, and, but but and, that seems hard to believe. Well, and also the fact that it was so pervasive that, that virtually all of the agencies of the federal government uh, were moving in the same direction from a customs agent at an airport in Orlando who was chastised when he uh, denied entry in the United States to a Saudi, uh, to uh, the President of the United States authorizing large numbers of Saudis uh, to leave the country, possibly denying us forever uh, important insights and information on what happened. Uh, the, you don't have everybody uh, moving in the same direction without there being uh, a head coach somewhere uh, who is giving them instructions as to where he wants them to move. So that includes before and after the events? Uh, primarily before the event. After the event, it shifts from being uh, an, an action that supports uh, the activities of the uh, Saudis uh, to actions that cover up uh, the results of that permission given to the Saudis to act. So I'll put you a little bit on the spot here. Um, would it be in this new commission that we hope comes, 
would it be a legitimate, legitimate line of inquiry into whether President Bush and or Vice President Cheney knew something might be coming and didn't do anything about it, in fact may have actually taken action in the sense of creating a culture of not wanting to know? Well, without by giving this answer inferring that I believe that they did in fact have uh, reason to believe that this attack was about uh, to occur and made a conscious decision uh, to suppress that information. Uh, if there were any evidence, and to my knowledge there is none, of, of course that would be a, uh, uh, a line of inquiry that would be central to answering the question of what was the Saudis' role and why did the United States cover it up? Drunk Look, we had known since 1998 with all the intervening terrorist incidents. You had the Kobar Towers, um, you had the embassy, uh, you had the coal, um, you had a number of other incidents as well, clearly all part of the pattern. And it was clear even in the intelligence there was something else that was even bigger. So it's not like this was not known. It was even known that it could be something in terms of a significant landmark or landmarks. Well, based on some reporting by Jason Lee, and it was numbers, also known. It could have been the twin. There's actually yes. thought it might be the twin towers. Yeah, Bob. Remember, this is part of the burden. I was there literally when they had tried to drop the World Trade Center towers the first time. So part of the fear was that they would come back using something different. We also knew about the Bohica. This is that plot during the mid-90s about blowing up airliners over, over the Pacific. This idea that, you know, that Condi Rice postulates that no one could have imagined, that was well imagined, is that you use airplanes as missiles. All known. And I'm not, I'm not even addressing what you already touched on some of it. My, fellow whistleblower FBI, Colleen Rowley, right, the, the famous, what became the famous, infamous letter that she sent to the director of the FBI uh, and testified before the Judiciary Committee. Um, yeah, it was known that... That, that, that there were guys yes. in, in, in um, yeah. Mil uh, Minneapolis Min yes. learning how to take off and they don't want to learn how to land. That's correct. And they can't get a warrant to get to the guy's computer. Yes. All of a sudden, the FBI is so worried about getting to some uh, the yes. constitutional rights to get to somebody's computer. Yeah. There's so many examples like this. There's a number of examples. I, I agree. Okay, well, I, we're going to continue this. Where I'm going to ask, you joined the NSA, you said, to defend your country. And then off camera, you told me, uh, but... Well, I joined, this is, I, this is, I, I say defend my country. I see, I had served in the Air Force during the Cold War. Okay, I flew in RC-135s, I'm I, listening in on the Warsaw Pact. I became the target country in which I became an expert as a crypto-linguist was East Germany. Okay? So I was certainly well aware of what a surveillance police state looks like and sounds like. Okay? You don't listen in on those type of communications year after year without it affecting you in terms of what does that mean, right? And why it's important not to go in that direction. Um, so I had served in the Air Force, I actually had a short stint at the CIA, and then I had been at the Navy for a number of years. All right, I'm going to stop you, because this is where we're going to pick up in the next segment. Because uh, we're going to get to how you go from there, from the Navy, and from fighting for your country, and I, I assume, believing most of the narrative that supports all of that. Actually not, but that's part of the deeper story. All right, well, we're going to get there, so yeah. please join us for the next segment of our interview. 
on the Real News Network.